Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. My name is Matt Pieknik, your host, and I am delighted today to welcome Oliver Davis and Tim Dean, co-authors of Hatred of Sex, published by University of Nebraska Press earlier this year. Oliver Davis is a professor of French studies at the University of Warwick and the author of Jacques Ranciere, Age, Rage, and Going Gently, Stories of the Senescent Subject in 20th Century French Writing, and editor of Ranciere Now, as well as the journal Modern and Contemporary France. Tim Dean is the James M. Benson Professor in English at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign and the author of Unlimited Intimacy, Reflections on the Subculture of Barebacking and Beyond Sexuality. Tim, your work has long been engaged with psychoanalysis, particularly the work of Freud and Lacan, and both of you have written significantly in the areas of queer theory and sexual cultures and practices, all of which form, along with the work of Jacques Ranciere, the major foundations for this book, Hatred of Sex. Tim, Oliver, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you for having us, Matt. Yes, thank you for having us. Before we start, I want to say that this book seized me in a way that uh, no book has for me since uh, what we've started to call the before times. <laughs> it touches on something of the zeitgeist, I think, right now, both sexually and politically, that feels very urgent and very unsettling. And it lends some language and organization for me to some of the very disorganizing phenomena that characterize this moment that we're all in right now. Uh, it was being seized this way that excited me very much to do the interview with you. So at New Books and Psychoanalysis, we always begin with the same question. To the extent that it's possible to know, what were your conscious motivations for writing Hatred of Sex? Well, Matt, thank you for asking the question. Thank you again for having us on your show. Um, I had both intellectual and personal motivations for wanting to write this book. Intellectually, I wanted to learn about the philosophy of Jacques Rancière, from Oliver, who knows Rancière's work much better than I do. And I wanted to explore whether Rancière's ideas were in some way compatible with psychoanalysis, as I understood it. That was my sort of wager going into it. Personally, though, you know, I wanted to deepen my connection with Oliver. I had never done a collaboration at this scale before, and I wanted to see if it would be possible for us to write a whole book together. Um, psychoanalytically, um, I would say that 
Oliver and I made a baby without having sex. And uh, yeah, I mean, in my case, I would say the the motivations were, were overdetermined. Um, a confluence of, of several concerns. Uh, similarly, as, as Tim has, has very generously said, I, I wanted to to learn from, from him and his long experience of, of psychoanalysis and using psychoanalysis in uh, queer sexual cultures, particularly. Um, but um, I suppose my my kind of intellectual, conceptual, ethical, political motivation was primarily a, a sense of frustration that um, despite the gains that have been made by the lesbian and gay liberation movement since the 1970s, and I'm, I'm using those terms advisedly because I think trans liberation is still very much in, in a battle in progress. Uh, but despite those gains, it seems that in the last 50 years or so, there's been a, um, a kind of significant proliferation of concepts of risk and danger. And these have come to gravitate around sex in a, in a very problematic uh, way. Uh, governing power has learned to harness fear of, of sexual risk and sexual danger. Um, and a lot of kind of well-intentioned movements, campaigning movements, for example, to eliminate child abuse, to eliminate violence against women. Um, these have had kind of cumulative collective side effects, if you like, that uh, have uh, spilled over into, in, into the culture and seem to betoken kind of together a kind of reversion to a sort of uh, uh, primitive sexual puritanism. And um, so it was a sense of frustration at, at that kind of that sort of backsliding, if you like, or that kind of paradoxical movement. And 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 for me, that was something that um, so that there is an edited volume by David Halperin and Trevor Hopp, um, The War on Sex, which Duke published in, in uh, 2017. And, and many of the contributors there, particularly the criminologists, I think, uh, take take issue with some of those some of the kind of phenomena that uh, that I've just mentioned, but I think it seemed it seemed to me, and I, and I suppose it seemed to us that there were there was a lot more to say on the matter, um, particularly from if you like a kind of uh, um, uh, from a psychoanalytic and from a sort of social and structural perspective that, that perhaps you know that that volume had less to say about, but we felt we could we could say something significant on. As a way of getting into the book, I want to ask about uh, Ranciere. Now, Oliver, you are. Uh, a scholar on the work of Ranciere, and especially his book, A Hatred of Democracy from 2005, is a, a central reference point for, for this book. Obviously, they share partial titles, Hatred of Sex and Hatred of Democracy. So for our listeners who are uh, maybe unfamiliar with Ranciere's work, can you tell us just a little bit about his concept of hatred of democracy and, and how it relates to this project? Yes, of course. I'll, I'll try to tell you just a little bit because I've spent a lot of time working on on Rancière over the over the years, and I've got uh, I've got a couple of books on him. So this 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 one book, um, yeah, the, obviously the title is it's a deliberate uh, a reference to the, to, to, to Rancière's volume, um, our title. Um, yeah. So the basic point of the book, I suppose, is that democracy since the very beginning, in other words, since its origins in in ancient Greece. Uh, has been bound up with a certain dislike or hatred for its messiness. And that's that's even among those who support it. So even among those who think that democracy is the best form of political regime, there's a kind of hatred, a kind of antipathy, a, a degree of discomfort with, um, uh, with, with its kind of messiness. And it's 
It's messy in the sense that democratic government, as opposed to other types of government, oligarchy, meritocracy, uh, tyranny, or you know, and so forth, um, democracy as a as a regime involves uh, people governing who don't have any particular uh, skills or aptitudes or qualities uh, that mean they should govern, and uh, so they govern. They govern for a period of time, and then governing passes to to others who similarly lack uh, lack skills or particular aptitudes so so in other words there's no identity in democracy there's no identity of of people who are uh, who are destined to govern you know it's government of anyone by anyone and everybody by everybody if you like so uh, in that sense it it, it dis, it's disruptive of a principle of social orderliness as a regime and that's that 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 in advance here's account that that goes to explain some of the kind of the hatred the discomfort that people feel uh, about democracy even even as i say those who support it so so we identify in the book then in hatred of sex we identify a a parallel here with sex um so sex uh when it's good <laughs> uh is disorderly is disordering of of our values our identities particular identities um, our sense of social self-regard, if you like. Um, and so in that sense, it's, it's analogous to democracy. I, I say analogous, but in fact, there's a little bit more, it's a little bit more than analogy, there's a little bit more than an analogy or parallel, because in, in, the, in the last, the very last chapter, the concluding chapter to the book, uh, where we begin to talk about uh, the, the hatred of democracy in the United States, Today, I mean, when I say today, I mean uh, really since the, the first Trump presidency. Um, uh, so we talk about the storming of the US, the US Capitol and uh, well, the on, still ongoing refusal to, to accept the, the results of the, uh, the last presidential election. And we look at the way in which that kind of hatred of democracy that all of those movements or uh, manifestations express can be related to the hatred of sex can be attributed to the hatred of sex. And so we look at, in particular, one of the, the sort of structuring fantasies of the QAnon movement, this idea that there is a kind of cult, it's completely lurid, outlandish notion, that there is a kind of cult of predatory paedophiles in government, uh, in the establishment, and that, that Donald J. Trump has somehow been sent to, to kind of purge the world of this. Uh, and it's, it's, it's a kind of lurid fantasy, but it is a, it is a kind of core structuring fantasy of this of this significant movement on the on the right and out and outright. So there we see we see that as coming from hatred of sex, in the sense that um, the kind of the figure of the paedophile in the U.S rose to prominence particularly in the 1990s the predatory paedophiles so in in anti-sexual predator legislation that was enacted in the the early 1990s in a, in a great kind of spirit of sort of elated cross-party consensus um which brought in some of the most draconian legislation uh really ever enacted so legislation that actually um that actually created new provisions of administrative law as opposed to kind of juridical law to to deal with a particular type of uh, uh, criminal, and and so what 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 that moment really uh, attuned everyone to, I think, in the U.S. was the idea that in order to protect vulnerable children, it was possible to suspend ordinary politics and to suspend the law, and um, that is precisely precisely what how how kind of. That, that leads into the QAnon fantasy and, uh, you know, the kind of anti-democratic, the hatred of democracy that's that's 
you know, still still very much uh, alive uh, in 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 the, in the U.S. And, and elsewhere today. This analogical connection uh, between hatred of sex and hatred of democracy is very interesting. I mean, you describe. Uh, this hatred of democracy is being constitutive of democracy since, you know, since its origins in ancient Greece. Um, and likewise, that there's uh, the same feature to our relationship to sex, to sexuality. There's a constitutive hatred of it. Uh, it's built in. Uh, and so it seems as though it's not going anywhere. Uh, help me understand that better. Why? <laughs> it's a constitutive hatred that uh, it can't go away. What about for people who are very into very into sex and and very you know sex loving and sex positive? Well, Matt, we include those people in our critique. That is, we we aspire to. Um, you could say we're being universalist, or you could say we're being we're being inclusive in the way that we are encouraged to be inclusive in our culture today. That is, we're talking about sex and hatred rather than the standard pairing of sex and love. I think what's constitutive about this, as you as you take that term from our book, is that um, sex, sexual pleasure has a propensity that is inbuilt to it to unbind psychic structures, to disrupt psychic structures such as the ego, and therefore, there is something about our egos. Even when we love sex, we also hate it because there is an antithetical structure to the ego and the unbinding force of sexuality. The ego is, of course, psychoanalytically understood as a bound structure. Um, and, you know, the, the point that I would add to what Oliver has just said about the um, sexual predator legislation of the 1990s is that it was um, profoundly anti-psychoanalytic in its refusal to think about childhood sexuality, infantile sexuality, as Freud talked about it. And I think Oliver is right to gesture to that 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 collection of essays, The War on Sex, but that book is itself notable for what, it's like six, 700 pages, and he never mentions Freud, he never mentions uh, psychoanalysis. That is to say, um, part of the problem with that legislation was its refusal, refusal to understand sexuality psychoanalytically. And part of the reaction to it is the refusal to understand sexuality psychoanalytically. And I think it's something to do with the fact of the infantile, what Freud called the infantile efflorescence of sexuality in childhood that makes it overwhelming to the structures of the ego. That is, we talk about sexual intensity, we talk about sexual excess, we talk about what's extreme in sexuality. Psychoanalytically, that is what sexuality is. Uh, it's not that it's uh, usually normative and mild, it's that it's by definition uh, excessive. And it's that that is very hard to like and be comfortable with in a consistent way. Now, as I was uh, reading this book and thinking about uh, the ways in which uh, our dislike 
for sex uh, can can easily, as the book traces, uh, cause us to find ways to you know, drop it out of discourse or, or move into other directions. Um, I wondered about, well, when I sort of coming up in my own training as an analyst uh, and as a you know, scholar researcher, uh, the discourse around uh, sex and sexuality and psychoanalysis seemed kind of built in together. Uh, when, when I think about queer theory uh, and psychoanalysis together, I think um, that you know, sex and its excessiveness and what's interesting about that, it's, it's efflorescence, it's, it's built in, it's part of it. You can't think one without the other. Um, but the book is tracing a number of ways in which uh, sex and sexuality have kind of dropped out of discourse. Um, and I'm wondering about that. I mean, from your perspective, what happened to this disordering aspect of sexuality in the discourse around sex? It found expression in the work of uh, Laplanche uh, very significantly, Leo Bersani as well, uh, and both of them get significant uh, uh, attention in this book. Um, but was it left out along the way? Uh, has it never really been included to begin with? Uh, is it subject to what Laplanche, uh, which you refer to in the book as just going astray? Uh, where has it gone? Where did it go? Matt, I think that question gets to the heart of the problem. And, you know, La, even Laplanche, Laplanche argues that even in Freud's own thinking, the capacity of sex to unbind and disorder gets forgotten gets forgotten, I'm sorry, gets forgotten, um, even by Freud himself, as he develops a theory of narcissism. So we have a situation in which the culture's deep suspicion of sex, the reversion to something like Puritanism, as Oliver referred to it, works in concert with any individual ego's tendency to forget that which is mostly unconscious, that which is unbound and particularly unbinding. So there is, there is, in the sense that we're describing something that is constitutive, we're also, in talking about the forgetting of it, the losing of it, talking about something that is to some degree inevitable, right? Um, and so what we're trying to do is bring that back into to the light and to show that even discourses, the university discourse of queer theory has been um, kind of complicit in the forgetting of sex in the name of various kinds of identities. Or one would say, another answer to your question is to say that what happened was identity. <laughs> what happened was people's uh, commitment to identity, um, to understanding themselves in identitarian terms which also has always seemed to me profoundly unpsychoanalytic. Would it be accurate then to uh, describe the book in part as a, uh, a psychoanalytically oriented critique of, of, I guess, what we call identity politics now? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, it would. And, and I guess I would also add to, to what Tim's just said that, you know, obviously administering power, governing power, uh, likes to think in terms of identity. <laughs> identity is what is, is is how it administers and organizes us, and it's how corporate power, which is not unrelated to governing power, of course, sells us stuff. So, yeah, um, 
it is a psychoanalytic critique of of of, of identity in this in this in this sphere. Yeah, absolutely. When we're locatable, uh, then we can be administered, right? When we can be found and plotted on a grid, then we can be sold to, uh, and we can be administered. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. When we can be known and known in all of our facets, and of course, you know, te techniques of kind of algorithmically driven techniques of, um, you know, machinic techniques for for kind of knowing us in these in these ways have, have proliferated in the last fifty years, which which lends a kind of new impetus to that uh, to the kind of identitarian uh, uh, side, if you like, and that makes makes critique of it, deconstruction of it, all the more urgent. I would say. And, and I would just, you know, I would just add, Matt, that I think on the left and in various aspects of various, um, let's say, pockets of queer culture, there is the idea that the way to resist the kinds of the formations of power that we're describing is to invent new, subversive, resistant identities, um, to create one's own identities. And I think that that actually perpetuates the problem rather than solving it. The, the solution to this problem is not through, uh, not through the defiles of identity. It's not it, to proliferate identities is to compound the problem, not to, uh, not to solve anything. So um, I think that political projects to um, political liber liberation projects based on identity. Um, seem to me extremely limited, if not doomed. I think the project of psychoanalysis, psychotherapy should not be to reinforce people's identities um, or to help them discover new identities. I think identity in toto is the problem. Thinking about that um, reminds me of uh, an important idea that comes up in this book, thinking about the idea you know, what you said, Tim, that uh, it shouldn't be a way of inventing new subversive identities or better identities uh, that uh, is going to get us somewhere or get us, you know, somewhere better. Um, that might not be helpful at all uh, and probably isn't. Um, there's this idea in the book, uh, you know, likewise, that uh, sex, uh given our hatred for it, it isn't something nonetheless that should be uh, redeemed or, or, made, or made lovable. Uh, something about its ugliness, its messiness uh, shouldn't, shouldn't be recuperated. That comes through strongly in the book. It shouldn't be recuperated. Um, and I wonder if you could say a little bit more about that. Why would why is it important not to not to redeem it not to try to I don't know make sex better? You know I think uh, you know psychoanalytically redemption is always a form of binding, right? To redeem something is to 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 bind it to make it acceptable to make it likable to make it lovable to make it palatable to make it somehow aesthetically acceptable, and I think that the impulse to redeem sex I. I understand it. I think it's extremely strong, um, but it is itself a binding impulse. And in binding that, which is the force of unbinding, what it get, what it gets rid of is sex itself, right? Um, that is, what is lost in the redemptive act is sex. That is, not sexual acts, 
not sexual activity, but the capacity of sex to unbind, which is which we talk about in the book in terms of we sort of appropriate, we adapt the notion of deplorability from Hillary Clinton's um, comment about Trump supporters. And I think what we're interested in there is what do you do with the deplorables? Um, really, what do we do with the deplorable parts of ourselves? How do we come to terms with them without simply cleaning them up, making them acceptable, um, disciplining them, making them good, um, making them tractable. Um, how do we deal with our own deplorability without simply eliminating it or projecting it onto somebody else? I want to talk, uh, there's a there's a great many things that are going on in this book. It's a very, uh, it's a very rich text for being very compact. Um, and there are many, to my mind, like wonderful critiques of uh, some of the things we're already talking about, uh, of identity politics and the ways in which identities kind of serve to make us more administrable, um, the ways, the, the, you know, the problematic ways in which uh, trying to bind sex uh, is unhelpful. And you also address um, the limitations of uh, intersectionality, um, which is connected to the identity politics, uh, as well as some of the more um, perhaps malevolent implications of the Me Too movement. I wish that we had time to talk about all of these things, um, but I'm curious, especially about the the latter chapters of the book, uh, where there's uh, where your f- focus turns particularly to attachment theory and to traumatology. Uh, Hatred of sex is very critical of attachment theory, which you refer to at one point as a bureaucratic cancellation of psychoanalysis, which I thought was such a a good way of capturing it. What, in your view, makes attachment theory inimical to psychoanalysis uh, and also to democracy? Uh, Thanks, Matt. That's that's a great question. uh, in a way, it's kind of all of chapter three that I kind of need to run through. So I'll try and I'll try and do that um, succinctly. Um, so, so Bowlby's attachment theory, John Bowlby's attachment theory that, that, that he developed in in the mid 20th century, alongside uh, Mary Salter Ainsworth, um, forms the, the bedrock really of of dominant ways today of understanding child psychological development um, across the board, really. Um, but perhaps, perhaps not in sort of some sort of psychoanalytic corners. But it, I think, it is socially and culturally uh, dominant in a way that perhaps psychoanalytic accounts aren't, uh, at least uh, aren't in most places any longer. Um, and so it's the bedrock also of, of of the kind of traumatology that that Judith Herman and others in particular have, have pioneered. So, so uh, but attachment theory actually, um, we find is. A extremely deterministic uh, and also a totalizing uh, theory. So uh, it, it, it finds in the child's early attachment relationship with, well, what is usually called the primary caregiver, but is, in, is invariably the mother, uh, the, the defining template for, for the adult personality. Um, and, and, and while within attachment therapy, therapy itself can do some sort of remedial work, if, if you know, if, 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 things go wrong in that that early formative uh, phase, um, it's kind of really tinkering around the edges. And in a very strong sense, I think, that doesn't doesn't apply uh, in in the same way in uh, forms of psychoanalysis proper, 
um, this is a kind of deterministic theory of of uh, of personality development. Anyway, that's just to kind of to contextualize it a little bit. So one of the, one of the one of the kind of things that we found looking at the kind of the way in which attachment therapy came about was that um, the idea of security is something that that Salter Ainsworth, Mary Salter Ainsworth in particular, um, fed into attachment theory, and she kind of took it, adapted it from the work of William Blatz, who was her a psychologist who was her supervisor and also her, her, her mentor, uh, who had this notion of kind of human security in, in his work. But, but what, one of the things that's very interesting that happens when when uh, when Ainsworth and Salter Ainsworth and Bowlby uh, take on this idea of security from Blatz is that instead of so in Blatz, you know, it, which seems to be quite a sensible perspective, um, Blatz understood human beings as being able to be secure in certain areas of their life and very insecure in other areas of their life. Um, but, but what happens for when, when in attachment theory is security becomes something that you either have or you don't. So it's a kind of total, total defining characteristic of, of, of the person. And it's from here we get, we get notions of, uh, uh, you know, the, the colloquial talk of a bit, somebody being very insecure, you know, this, this kind of comes from, from attachment theory, really. Um, so, so in other words, to be securely or insecurely attached or, I mean, there are lots of sort of sort of more, as it were, <laughs> precise uh, variants on the, on the typologies within attachment theory. But, but this is a kind of total personality type for attachment theory. Um, now, there are lots of problems with attachment theory. Um, feminists have identified problems with attachment theory long before us. Uh, so... It, mothers get blamed basically for most of the suffering in in the world according to attachment theory um i mean not not explicitly obviously but that's the implication um but what one of the things we identified was the the sheer arbitrariness of the principal focus of bowlby and salter ainsworth's empirical work and, and that of the that, that of the tavistock clinic where they were where, where they were based so they, they chose what they called separation as as the kind of main focus of their empirical work and so this was this was what happened when when uh infants and children in the, in this sort of sensitive formative years were were separated for various and partly it had to do with wartime evacuations in from from cities in the uk this was part of the kind of impetus for the work but separation of various kinds became for them the kind of the, the sort of the principal cause of of pathology uh in 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 later development but that was a totally arbitrary choice of focus and bowlby if you read bowlby carefully he admits to it in the work he says we chose separation because we had to choose something um and separation could be easily observed so separation was chosen for the convenience of getting funding to run these projects to develop this work separation was you know it's like separate separation is in, you know it's, it's an incredibly kind of wide general malleable adaptable concept just like attachment actually and this is part of the problem i think with attachment theories it's is it, it sounds so innocuous you know who could who could object to attachment but actually part of its part of the problem with it is it's it's kind of the, the way it can be ubiquitously re redeployed so so anyway feminists have a problem with it separation is a kind of arbitrary choice um in in the theory but in, in terms of relation to psychoanalysis this is this is this is key i think because um separation was something you could easily easily observe 
And Bowlby and Salter Ainsworth, what they like to do is they like to observe rather than listen to the children that they were engaged with. So the sort of, if you like, the aesthetic, the sensory modality of attachment theory is, is observation. It's a surveillance, surveillant visualist modality. It's not, it's not a psychoanalytic modality. It's not anything to do with kind of listening to, to, to somebody talk uh, and express themselves. Um, now, um, uh, yeah. So, so, so that's it. So, this is quite. It is as you as you get. You said it was compact. Our book. It is. It is quite. Uh, it's quite quite imbricated, particularly in this in this in this chapter. So, I'm just trying to pull out some of these threads. So, 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 yeah. In terms of the relationship with psychoanalysis, um, uh, so there is this this surveillance visualist sensory modality which contrasts with the the, the freudian psychoanalytic modality obviously um uh, but also uh, so whereas for freud for for freudian lacanian laplancian and other types of psychoanalysis proper conflict intrapsychic conflict conflict within the psyche uh, is just part of the human condition um and you know what therapy is is there for is to kind of help us understand these conflicts and and live them and perhaps tolerate them without without so much suffering but the conflicts kind of don't go away for attachment theory intrapsychic conflict is produced by deficiencies in the caregiving environment uh, in these formats in the formative years so so basically for for the kind of implication of within attachment theory was that if you could readminister the caregiving environment in other words readminister a portion of the material social world political world you could kind of eliminate intrapsychic conflict and eliminate suffering and so it's a kind of utopian theory in a way um but and, and let me just let me just interrupt yeah, yeah. One, oliver just to give you give you a, a moment's break but it's a utopian theory that involves a kind of social engineering that would be all about eliminating the unconscious right it would be as you say about programming families mothers and children so that caregiving happens in the right way and something like something like psychic conflict just disappeared and there's something profoundly it's utopian but it's also profoundly dangerous in that idea of eliminating what is what is part and parcel of subjectivity uh, absolutely and so this and the, 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 in a way there's a kind of implicit ideal of single-mindedness of of of, uh, of single-mindedness and simple-mindedness, if you like, um, it, within attachment theory, and that's that lends it absolutely to projects of uh, administering power in the post-war period. And the Tavistock Clinic, as you know, the work of Peter Miller and Nicholas Rose has has shown very eloquently, was was absolutely to, in, its mission. Really, was to kind of re-engineer uh, British society for that post-war that post-war world. And so, if you have if you have single-minded individuals, you know, who are securely attached. Uh, they can be slotted into the system of administering power quite quite smoothly um, in a way that you know kind of like the the, 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 the two minded ambivalent never quite sure where they are individuals that you know in a certain reading kind of Freudian psychoanalysis gives us that they're much less governable <laughs> it's much harder to to, 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 to govern them and so, I mean, and then if, uh, just just to bring it back to hatred of sex, finally, for me, then um, attachment theory is what we say about it in chapter three. Um, then, um, uh, so we, we look we look at 
we kind of look at we sort of read that you mentioned me too um and obviously we we don't we're not uh, we're not um we're not against me too <laughs> um but we 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 are um skeptical about some of the kind of cumulative side effects if you like unintended consequences of this as as with other movements uh, and um, so one of the things we were, we were interested in was where this idea of what appropriateness in sexual relating is, where, where's it coming from? And it's, an, it's not just something that's it's not just something that's vectored by Me Too, but it, it was vectored, I think, by Me Too, is vectored by Me Too. But also it's something embedded in a lot, to, a lot of kind of consent based uh, sex ed programs in, in, in uh, across campuses and, and, and schools. Uh, um, so what we call schools in Britain, but in educational establishments anyway. Um, uh, uh, so, so where does this idea of appropriateness come from in in, in healthy sexual relatedness? And, and, we, and we, we kind of came to the conclusion it sort of comes from attachment theory, uh, and it comes from attachment theory because attachment theory models adult sexual relationships, romantic relationships, on the relationship between the infant and the primary caregiver. So in terms of the relationship between uh, the infant and the secure base, if you like. Uh, and so what that actually means, what that actually means is that the sort of healthy sexual relatedness on that model is a model of fairly intermittent sex in the context of a marriage-like relationship, an intimate monogamous relationship. Um, and so any other kind of sex uh if you like promiscuous sex uh lots of the kinds of sex that that when gail rubin developed her wonderful idea of the charmed circle you know that lie on the kind of outer reaches of that circle um those kinds of sex are are viewed with suspicion as as dangerous um and those who engage in them or suspected of engaging with them are, are more intensively watched and, and and police so so attachment theory gets the blame for all of that it's remarkable, and uh, I mean, you underline this both here and in the book, the the kind of militarized language that is built into attachment theory that is uh, is very innocuous on the surface, right? You don't you don't really hear it, and so you start listening for it, right? But the idea of the secure base, um, and you know, corollary to that, the idea that the the world out there uh, is is kind of naturally threatening. Right, harmful. There's there's danger out there, and we have to be protected. Um, it starts to help flesh in, you know, this general feeling I think that we're in, uh, you know, in the United States and elsewhere, uh, that we have to be, we have to be, we have to be on guard at all times. <laughs> the enemy could be coming from everywhere. I think. I mean, I think that comes in in a way. It comes from partly from a kind of the way in which, you know, in the 1970s. Um, government started to measure, it started in the US, started to measure uh, not just um, the experience of being a victim of crime, but the fear of crime. So and, um, among ordinary citizens who hadn't been victims of crime. Um, so uh, that allowed something quite inchoate around fear and security, the, the kind of ego's fear of being overcome to enter into political discourse and to become cons to become a thing within political discourse. And I think that that in turn led, and I mean, it's not a totally original set of claims, it's something David Garland and other critical criminologists have been saying for, for a long time, but this this allowed, this allowed um, 
politicians then to make it quite exorbitant promises of of security uh, and uh, to try and outbid each other competitively in this this sort of cycle and, or spiral. And I think to to my mind, that explains kind of rightwards drift in our political systems much better than a lot of the other accounts for for that uh, that movement do. Uh, but so, so just to say that I think, yeah, the, um, you know, we're, we're very accustomed to thinking about security as as a good as a good thing. I think I think reading Bowlby and reading you know reading the way in which you know his experiences, um, you know, as an officer in the Second World War, you know, there's, there are some really really military examples in. Uh, uh, you know, in his in his great uh, trilogy, his big trilogy, um, that, that uh, you know that that, that that really really point to the kind of militarism that attachment theory wired into uh, its own set of uh, beliefs, and then into into the wider culture. And I I think that just to add to what Oliver is saying, I think that those those militarized metaphors and the push increasing the intensifying push towards security and securitization absolutely goes along with a psychoanalytic critique of the ego as a fortified structure, as a structure that works through defenses, right, that is known by its defense mechanisms, that is, its, its very structure and the way it operates is entirely compatible with a militaristic view of the world. Uh, it's interesting just, you know, listening and thinking about uh, the fear of danger out there, you know, that has emerged in the political discourse and, you know, what you're talking about to politicians who seize on this so much. I mean, as it, literally up to this minute earlier today i was reading the headlines about the midterms here next week and how it's become the you know overarching concern of voters apparently uh you know the possibility of of crime um that we're most preoccupied with right now it's very effective so there's a lot to say about attachment theory at the same time attachment theory uh your critique of attachment theory um forms the, the foundation, the base, <laughs> as it were, um, for a larger critique that you start to make in the next chapter of the book, uh, which is about uh, traumatology or what I might uh, call in, in, in my day-to-day, -day, like trauma-focused care, um, trauma-focused therapies, but traumatology. And uh, the, the movement that the book traces, you describe the ways in which uh, traumatology kind of takes the... Uh, already most problematic aspects of uh, attachment theory as you see them and uh, radicalizes them and, and weaponizes them. Uh, traumatology really emerges as a, a kind of, uh, well, when you, when you start to say weapon, as a really almost like <laughs> dangerous, there's, there's an element of danger uh, to, to uh, traumatology that we are, are not so aware of. Yes. Um, yeah. I mean, just to, to, to give you one example of that. I mean, I suppose this this the, the sort of the one dimensional ideal of, of single mindedness in attachment theory, you know, so the idea that there is no if there's intrapsychic conflict, it's the fault of the, the caregiving environment. So in, in trauma focused in, in the kind of traumatology, um, you know, obviously we read trauma and recovery among among other works in the book. Um, 
so 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 there so things like multiple personality disorder you know alters and fragmentation that the kind of fragmentation that is theorized to be a result of a, a result of prototypically uh, child sexual abuse but also other kinds of sexual trauma so that, that 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 is very 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 clearly a kind of radicalization of the of the position with attachment theory that sees that sees intrapsychic conflict as uh products of the deficiency in the early caregiving environment and just and just to like you know get at the get at what you're asking about matt from a different a slightly different angle um the way that we are trying to describe sexuality psychoanalytically as something as a force of unbinding following Laplanche as something that therefore disrupts or violates the ego can make can make the intensity of sexual pleasure seem dramatic in itself right that is to say um one could even go so far as to say that the, the better the sex, the more intense the sex, the more likely it is to be traumatic in some way. And I think that what we're trying to do is disarticulate that phenomenon from the discourse of sexual abuse, right? That is, if I'm overwhelmed, if I'm overwhelmed, even traumatized by my own pleasure, that doesn't mean that I'm being abused or assaulted by somebody else. And I think that it can be very, very difficult, especially for young people to come to terms with that distinction, which I think is a, I think is a psychoanalytic distinction, but it's to say that um, sex, the intensity of sexual pleasure can be harmful to my ego to my own defenses, but that doesn't mean that somebody else is harming me. Um, and it's a, it's a tricky distinction to make, but I think it's a crucial one for the, for the politics that we're trying to advocate and intervene in. It is a crucial distinction, and it's and it's a distinction that's 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 difficult to make, partly because of the commodification of traumatized identity that that traumatology has kind of um, either not noticed or kind of you know not not critiqued itself, um, and so 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 the idea that that that, that to, to to have to kind of curate. Uh, the identity of uh, 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 as a victim of trauma, a survivor of trauma, is a way to accrue uh, attention uh, in in the marketplace of of social attention. And uh, and traumatology has been extremely successful in in curating traumatized identity. And uh, this le- this leads people to think that they have been traumatized in situations where you know they might just have had uh, very good sex or they might just have had a kind of unusual experience uh not in a kind of proper sense a kind of traumatic experience so i think there's a kind of there's a dynamic within traumatology itself that has that has made that that distinction that we we want to insist on harder to harder to draw right and i i I think i think that's exactly right and i would just i just want to give a shout out to our colleague and friend Avi Sakadapulo, whose book, Sexuality Beyond Consent, will be out shortly, and I'm sure you will try to get her on your podcast, Matt. Um, but she's making an argument there about 
um, uh, via Laplanche about trauma, about sexuality, about consent, and trying to develop a concept of traumatophilia to combat this idea that, um, to, to combat exactly what we are talking about in other terms. It sounds like uh, it's interesting with with a trauma coalescing and being commodified into an identity. I mean, trauma is, uh, it seems to have a sort of like, um, like a halo around it. It's untouchable, right? And once you can identify as having uh, a trauma or a traumatized identity, uh, there's license for uh Kind of specialized forms of recognition um, <clears throat> and uh, treatment, uh, as well as even this idea in terms of treatment from a, a clinical perspective, that some of the uh, maybe like otherwise um, ethical boundaries might uh, might be more elastic, right? There's an idea, you know, that we should really be uh, very forthcoming in informing people about their trauma if they have had a trauma a traumatic experience or if the clinician suspects that they might um yeah yeah absolutely which is yeah which 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 when the clinician gets it right you know is okay more or less um well we, you know one might take exception to it on other on other kind of therapeutic grounds but you know when they get it right it's okay but there is there is throughout trauma and recovery there is a kind of repeated uh exploitation there's a there's a suggestion Throughout, throughout trauma recovery, that, 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 you know, there is likely to be trauma um, in, in sexual trauma, most, most especially in, in case histories, even where, they're not, where it's not on the surface. And it's the therapist's job, absolutely, as you say, Matt, to, uh, according to that, that kind of way of thinking, to, to unearth and pinpoint and, and actually suggest to the patient that, that, that the analysand that this, this, is, this is part of their experience. And, uh, that it, that can be very problematic uh, in, in all sorts of ways, and and you know for for your listeners, Matt, who might be thinking, you know, well, look, they're here, these guys, um, just simply minimizing trauma and not understanding what I myself have gone through. I you know I want to say that our 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 goal, our aim, is not to minimize trauma, but is to say the trauma is not and cannot be the explanation for everything. And the way that traumatology has worked in the culture and the way the popular culture works in our trauma, in our cult, in our culture is to make trauma the explanation for everything so that people who never heard of psychoanalysis, they know all about trauma. They can talk about trauma. People who have not been to college can talk about trauma. It's, it's, it's become a kind of go-to idea within the culture which um, is a way of mobilizing resources for oneself it's a way of um, uh, attaching to an identity as Oliver describes it becomes the explanation for everything and it's a way of saying um, it can be a way of saying it can be it can be used as a way of saying I, in fact, have no responsibility for what has happened. I myself do not have uh, aggressive or rapacious or appropriative uh, impulses. I am, in fact, wholly innocent 
and some somebody who's just done too, rather than somebody who does things to other people. Um, and so there's a way in which trauma as a concept is used to avoid responsibility for the 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 impulses we all have, which are the least appealing to our own egos, our own sense of ourselves, right? Trauma is a way of avoiding, claiming to have been traumatized is a way of avoiding one's own deplorability, one's own wish to, um, uh, to fuck and to kill, which let's just say are, you know, understood in Freud right from the beginning as part of what it means to be human, not part of what it means to be a man, part of what it means to be human. Um, And I think we live in a culture that wants us to disavow those impulses, attribute them to other people, people we don't like, social groups we don't like, and and then they run amok because nobody is actually taking responsibility for their own unattractive impulses. Nobody's owning them. I think that distinction that you mark earlier, Tim, is an important one. Uh, it's not that uh, the book aims to uh, you know, diminish or, or set aside the importance of uh, trauma or the experience of people who... Uh, have had you know, very traumatic experiences as much as uh, the critique seems to be aimed at uh, maybe uh, sort of a, a applying some uh, breaks maybe to the emotional momentum, the movement of, of traumatology in our culture and the way in which it has really, uh, you know, as you say, become an explanation for everything, the ease with which that happens and the quickness with which it's possible for us to leap to that now. And within the field of sex as well, you know, there, the, what, what, what we what we argue is that there's a, there's a kind of whole domain of, of what we call um, that which is kind of benignly sexually inappropriate, uh, but that is falls short of traumatic or, or abusive, uh, and that's that's a distinction. I mean, that will be a controversial distinction, I think, for a lot of for a lot of people. But what what, what we what we're saying is that kind of traumatology and the kind of popular cultural uh, fetishization of trauma have led to led to the recoding of all sorts of forms of sort of sexual awkwardness and weirdness that you know decades ago we might have called queer being recoded as traumatic and or traumatogenic and and abusive and that so just 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 sketching that kind of differentiation is is for us an important important move as well and it's and it's obviously it's going to be provocative and it's going to upset some people we understand that and and, you know in terms of in terms of um queer theory and politics part of what we're seeing is that the appropriate has become the new normal right that is a category that is wielded to discipline and um, Um, subjugate and get rid of all the things you don't like, um, both in yourself and in the people around you, right? By coding things as not appropriate, that's exactly the way that normal 
um, used to function before the queer critique of normal, which I think was a tremendously important critique and has seems to have sort of fallen away in the resurgence of this new version of the normal, which is, quote unquote, the appropriate. Just... Uh tracing that, you know, movement from the normal to the appropriate, uh, made me wonder what it, uh, I don't know, what it's like to observe that happening. I mean, uh, time was, you know, during uh, an earlier stage in, in, in queer theory, right? The critique of normal was, was very, was very prevalent. I mean, Michael Warner's book from back then, The Trouble with Normal was, you know, probably like the touchstone book for really drawing, uh, the problematics of, of norms and normality into the open. <laughs> What's it like? Is it surprising? Is it just to see, um, I don't know, appropriateness kind of supplant and substitute and maybe like deepen the same kinds of, uh, uh, I don't know, hatreds that norms used to sort of help set up in police? There's been a redistribution of repressive energies, is what I'd say. <laughs> Migration and redistribution. Um Let's see, we're going to be closing in a few minutes. Uh, I'm glad that you had mentioned the the concept of benign uh, benign sexual inappropriateness. It seems like it's an important way of trying to um, kind of broaden the discourse, open up the space for there being uh, ways to actually verbalize, speak about, and understand a broader range of sexual experiences, as well as uh, our own conflicted you know, experiences of those experiences. Um, before we wrap, uh, there was one question that I wanted to ask. You, you know, point out importantly that where, uh, you know, sex has come to be defined or, or understood often as something that is, you know, harmful, dangerous, potentially abusive, that has to be uh, guarded against, um, that sex needs to be redefined in terms of, in terms of pleasure. I think this conversation has in its ways been about that need, but I'm curious, um, since on, on, on the bleaker days, it seems like this period of, of, of hatred around sex being so visible is going to be around for some time. Um, even, even during the course of time that, uh, I was reading this book and preparing this interview, uh, you know, dramatic political legislative changes here in the United States in terms of like Roe v. Wade, which, uh, I just thought, oh, here's we're we're on the march, right? This is, this is part of it. But, um, I don't know, are there places in culture or elsewhere where you currently see this redefinition of sex as pleasure happening? Um, you know, I, Matt, I will just say I'm not sure I have a great answer to that question in terms of places in culture, um, but I do think the pleasure is tremendously important, especially pleasure that cannot be harnessed to any economic or political agenda. I think part of the way capitalism works is by um, trying to co-opt and make use of, instrumentalize all of our pleasures to make money. So I think there's, there needs to be, we need to be able to think about, hold on to a place for non, non-utilitarian pleasures, pleasure for its own sake, and, and also to understand that that kind of pleasure, which is worth cultivating, can still be 
unstable, right? Can still be dangerous in some way. But what is dangerous too is the fortifications of my own identity, right? To the rigidity of identity. And I think it's 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 too easy to make the mistake of thinking that that pleasure can be harnessed to a political agenda. I, I, I'm, I'm skeptical that it can, um, although this may be a place where Oliver and I um, don't always agree. I mean, I, I suppose I, I suppose sort of in the in the recent in the recent past, certainly in the kind of early years of combination therapy, barebacking, you know, something that Tim's worked on a lot would have been a way of um, might might have been a kind of sort of sexual subculture that, um, um, yeah, that, that there would be um, there would be be hope for the kind of pleasurableness of of sex kind of overriding its dangerousness and or, or, or the danger being part of the pleasure. Um, I guess chemsex subcultures in uh, in in kind of gay male uh, subcultures, particularly also also women involved in chemsex, although it's not always called chemsex. Um, I guess kink and BDSM subcultures are still thriving in a, in a way. Um, um, there, was a, there was a very interesting series of four, four podcasts um, by, by some folks at a, a podcast called Drunk Church that, that, that came out uh, uh, last week, I think. Uh, listen, I listened to them last weekend anyway. Uh, uh, Cosmo B. Concordia and Aurora Laban. And, uh, you know, clearly our book resonated with some of their experiences and they're very involved in, it sounds like anyway, in those kinds of subcultures. So that was, that was really heartening to, to hear that, that, that it resonated with, with their interest in pleasure and pleasure in spite of and alongside danger, if you like. And just, and just to kind of like, you know, throw in a little, um, plug for for the people of, of Drunk Church. Um, I, I was, you know, I was sort of intrigued by um, these 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 people I do not know and that Oliver does not know. Sort of um, doing a series of podcasts on our book, Hatred of Sex, but without reaching out to us, without wanting to interview us, without consulting us as as ostensible authorities on the book and i think in fact that's a tremendously good sign that they were not interested in us as authorities they just wanted to do something with the ideas in the book and run with it in their own directions and i you know i really enjoy talking to you matt and i am enjoying this conversation but i also completely applaud the folks who who run with this in what in whichever direction seems to them most most um most enjoyable. I love that idea that, uh, I mean, the, the book and the ideas in the book are starting to take on a life of their own. Um, and uh, there needn't be the participation of you know, the writers of the book as masters of the, of the discussion uh, in order to continue exploring those ideas and, and deepening them and, and seeing where it is that they're going to go. Absolutely. Well, Oliver and Tim, we're going to have to draw to a close, but uh, this conversation has been has been wonderful, if entirely too short. I wish that we could go longer. Um, before we have to end, I'm curious, uh, what projects the two of you might be working on now? 
So I'm writing a book on the politics of psychedelics, on the politics of the psychedelic renaissance, and a part of that is actually looking at the the idea of uh, psychedelic treatments for, for trauma. I'm working on a range of projects. I feel that none of them is quite as interesting as Oliver's psychedelic project, but at the moment I'm trying to write uh, a piece about the history of AIDS literature, uh, which I'm calling What Was AIDS Literature, to think about um, putting it, to think about AIDS vis-a-vis a certain, a certain understanding of temporality, which would be a psychoanalytic understanding of temporality. Um, and I'm also writing a piece on um, my own relationship over the last 30 years to to queer theory and my um, um, cantankerousness, my cantankerous arguments with some of the key figures in queer theory and trying to reassess that. All of these projects sound uh, fascinating. I would look forward to having you on uh, down the road when, when the work around them has been published. Uh, It'll be a pleasure. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for inviting and us. And thank on. you very Thanks. much for joining me today, both of you. Uh, and I would like to take a moment also to thank our listeners to for joining in. Uh, until next time. Thank you.